Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Today's is a very special show. A very special episode. They're all special in our own way. But this one's extra special. Yeah. As we careen towards the end. Oh, how sad is that? We started to wonder exactly what we could do that was special. While still being just episodes, because we don't want to get too self-indulgent. True. That's, that, that would be it, I think. We don't want 16 different endings like Lord of the Rings. And you don't want to be in David Tennant's last Doctor Who episode, where yeah. you're just like, will you please just regenerate? No, instead we've got four different endings. We have. We've got four different endings. We're going to record them all. Yeah. And we're going to pick which one we prefer. Alternate takes. <laughs> Release a director's cut next yeah. year. Yeah, so anyway, whilst we were spitballing ideas, Michael came up with a really good one. Um, I like that. Uh, well, that you're getting all credit for that. Four good ideas. This yeah. was your idea. It's nothing to do with me. Our favourite comics. Yeah. That's what Michael came up with. Now, on the face of it, this is a very simple topic. Mm-hmm. and one that we could run off with in a very short amount of time. However, as usual, that's not the way it's panned out. And my mind started going in lots of different directions, and I set myself ground rules like I always do when we do stuff like this. And these rules do not apply to you. Yeah. You had your own rules. I did. And um, we'll get into that when we get into the main body of the show. We'll right. actually lay out what our rules were in picking our stories. But first, as is the norm, we're going to read an email, or two. Maybe not too many, because today's maybe a long one. Or we may split it, we've not decided yet. We've not. That's Peak. how much planning and preparation yeah, comes into the show. But if we do split it, we get 250 episodes. That's true. So, instead of 249. It's so a hard choice. It is a very hard choice. But anyway, uh, in regards to comics, I read all of Hawkeye. Right. Finally got to the end of Hawkeye. Really not worth the wait. Was it not? No, 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 no. Fair enough. Despite the pleading editorial at the end. Yeah. Please say it was worth the wait. <laughs> Please say it was worth waiting nearly 70 years for. No, no, it wasn't. Fair enough. You've well, not read it, have you? I've, I've not finished it, no. No. I read it as it came out and... Got bored. Got bored waiting, waiting for the next issue. Yeah. That seems fair enough. But anyway, seeing as this, as we're, this is a special episode, we thought we'd read a special email. Okay. Our special email comes from J. David Wheater. You can call me Dave. I like that. The long goodbye. Oh, he's making me sad. Mm-hmm. Tinkly, tinkly piano music of sadness. Getting all teary-eyed. Players in the background. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Michael. Spelling counts. It does count, thank you. And he spelled it right. <laughs> As the end is nearing, I wanted to compose some final thoughts on the saga of Hey Kids comics. I like the idea that we're a saga. Ah, that's pretty oh, cool. That's brilliant, isn't it? And we had a, a, a grim middle act. Yeah, yeah. And now we're, we're coming slow. up on the optimistic ending. Is that what we're doing? Lots of fireworks and Ewoks going, yup, nope. <laughs> they don't sing yup, nope anymore, do they? They, they do in our version. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a bit early, but I wanted to beat the rush. I can't imagine there'll be a rush of people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Unless it's a rush of people saying, here's the door, get out. 
And before I wanted to write in before I get distracted by shiny objects. As I have stated before, this show has been my go-to for my weekly drive, the time for me to clear out the cobwebs from the work week and workshop various scrambled ideas bouncing around in my head. It is an important part of my week, and this show has been an important part of that drive. It fit perfectly, and I have no clue what will fill the gap. Well, can I just say, David, that the Palace of Glittering Delights isn't going anywhere. (laughs) Just you won't be there. That is true. Very sorry about that. There'll be like a hole in There'll be a void where you used to be. I'll turn and go, oh, he's not here. Yeah. Oh, very sad. See, you record the palace on your own, but when I'm gone, you will turn to ask me for my opinion. Yeah, and and I'll be deeply sad when you're not there to be wrong. Unless unless you answer for me. What do you think of this cover, Michael? (laughs) It's a pretty good one. (laughs) (laughs) What accent was that? I I don't know. It's it's, it's my younger self. That's what I sounded like. Uh, Oh, God, yeah. If you go back and listen to that from five years, you think you sounded like Mickey. I I kind of hope not for copyright reasons. Yeah, we don't want the mouse coming at us with lawyers. So that would not be good. I don't think Demanzo can afford that. Demanzo would just throw it like plausible deniability. Demanzo's lawyers is so good. Um, I never listened to the show. I don't have any idea. I don't know what they like. do. They're on their own, completely independent, and therefore nothing to do with us. Uh, yeah, David continues. Anyway, I want to say uh, to say that I have enjoyed the show is a massive understatement. It has become a part of my routine, and for one who is, thankfully, moderately OCD, that is a key element to life overall. A final few thoughts. Oh, does this mean he's not going to email him again? This is it, the <laughs> last one. It. Yeah, I should have saved this for the last episode. Shouldn't I? Mm. Number one, I was originally sceptical of the show. I had no idea who these British guys were. <laughs> We've no idea who we are. But I quickly warmed to the father-son dynamic, and I wish that my late father and I had had similar common ground and a shared project. Two, these are not just episodes, they are family time. As life moves forward for both of you, these recording sessions will be akin to old family photographs, and you have invited us along for the experience. Thank you for that. See, the show has often led me to spending money, mostly on comics that I hadn't read, but wanted to after your coverage. Thanks for the reading material, but the wallet may not agree. Four, Michael has grown up on this show. The Sarah jokes have faded away since Michael has become quite formidable, often managing to change the mind of his father, and his selections for coverage have been novel. Even if I didn't have interest in the material, I always loved the discussion. V, ultimately, (laughs) it has been a pleasure, and the fact that the show made it nearly five years without missing a week is a true accomplishment. But a bigger accomplishment, the episodes have all been great, and it has been a pleasure and a privilege to have it in the world. So best of luck to Michael wherever life takes him. I look forward to the reunion movies such as The Trial of Hey Kids Comics and Hey Kids Comics I Still Love LA, but it will not be the same. Until we meet again, I have been and ever shall be your friend, J. David Wheater. You can call me Dave. And I love that the cat came in yeah. to ruin the moment. He's, he's crying of the finale. Oh, thank you very much. Mm. That was I read that on my phone, didn't I? Yeah, when you we did. first got it and I said you need to listen to this when it arrived in the inbox. It was quite touching and heartfelt, and uh, thank you, David. But well, let's not get what's his name. Let's go get Marvel. Mm-hmm. But we appreciate that, and even Angela liked it. Yep. Angela, the I don't see point of podcasting voice from the gods <laughs> that occasionally descends in the show. So uh, even she likes that email. Called Blackheart. Yes. <laughs> she is the evil god. <laughs> She's the god of punishment. Yeah, yeah. She isn't such a bad thing in many ways. Anyway, um, another email. Patrick Kakorin dropped us a quick line. From Metro Metro Detroit, I can't say Detroit for some reason. Metro Detritus, 
I think that's close. <laughs> um, this may be a nitpick on the utmost level, but in the file show notes of the show, I think it's very sweet that you reverse the authors on the file from Andrew to Michael to Michael to Andrew. I like that. Yeah, I thought I was doing that. No, I did that. I do it on whichever it is. It's you who does the file. I do it. When I convert the file to an MP3 for you to edit it in Audacity, I change the file name. Yeah, yeah. So when it's a Michael episode, I give you top billing. Mm. But I get and. Yeah. Which, as we all know... (laughs) Is the the top billing. Is the top billing. So I am and in that particular Nobody's ever actually noticed Noticed the the genre that I put it in when I do my shows. Have they not? No. I I would imagine Patrick has if he's noticed that. There is, though, yeah. Because we used to just pick wacky genres. Now I just put speech. I usually stick to Christian gangster (laughs) rap. It tickles me and it stops. It amused you that that was in the list of choices. (laughs) Of all the genres genres to pick, yeah. That's going to be the most oddly specific one. So if you're ever looking for our show and you can't find it, look at the Christian Gangster Rap. That's where we'll be. Yeah. Patrick continues, I really enjoyed your coverage of Multiverse and your take on the entire series as a whole resulted in my rereading and reinterpreting the series. I enjoyed reading it monthly, saw the satire of the work at a macro level, but realised I had missed all the flat-out funny lines and gags, i.e. the looks Murray Marvel and Freddy exchange in regards to cleavage and sexual innuendo or Captain Carrot in general. Maybe that is your Grant Morrison indoctrination book, Andrew. A Grant Morrison funny animal comic book. Imagine if Huey, Dewey and Lou were having a slapstick-style fight with the Ninth Dimension many angled ones what's all tripping on MDMA and ash oil. <laughs> nice job on the shows, Michael, and I think you made a strong case for why Superman, as the paragon of virtue and justice, becomes problematic when cast in an Ellsworld role of being the bad guy. Superman may embody all the qualities whacked out Aryan myth-obsessed Nazi scum assumed an ubermensch to be, but the character of Kal-El and or Clark Kent that we all know from the DC universe does not mesh. Thus you create that interesting paradox and discussion, and you two had and the discussion you two had determining what makes Superman super, nature, nurture, the embodiment of Clark, Cal, and Superman. Man, I was flashing back to my catechism class and having nuns explain the concept of consubstantiation and the Holy <laughs> Trinity, which made my mind melt age 11. Uh, I will keep my black costume saga feedback to I enjoyed it, it brought back waves of nostalgia and made me laugh. And that's from Patrick Kokora uh, in Metro Detroit, home of Robocop. <laughs> the only thing it's known for <laughs> Detroit is known to be the home of Robocop <laughs> unless there's like a really cool statue tribute statues of Robocop made out of all the trash and did rubbish did they not around. a statue of Robocop like. you know, know in the same way Philadelphia has got a statue of Rocket yeah <laughs> tonight before we get into the main body of the show David Maines emailed in hey Andy and Michael just want to show this photo I told you before I'm a maths teacher and a couple of kids know I'm a Superman fan they found a similar picture online and decided they want to replicate it in the wall of my classroom just in case it's tough to tell that's over a thousand post-it notes which go to make up the Superman figure. Somebody wanted to use red post-it notes for the eyes, but I demanded that there would be no glowy red eyes of death. <laughs> you guys have trained your listeners well. Take care, David Main. And if we open that up, that is actually pretty damned awesome, that, isn't it? Yeah. It's class. I've got a bunch of different coloured post-it notes, and it looks huge. And made um, a Superman mural just from post-its. Mm. And it's brilliant, isn't it? I like the little shadow at the bottom. Because he's hovering. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's attention to detail. Yeah. I like that the cape's all flowing one way, because it's obviously windy. Yeah. And I like that he's got a kiss curl. Mm. And uh, the eyes are blue. 
Yeah. That's great. It's good, isn't it? That's great. It is brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. So thank you, David, for sending that in. That, that's awesome. Even Anya showed up to look at it, <laughs> which is quite nice. All that instead of doing maths. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that was the impetus. <laughs> if we do this really nice thing for Mr. Maine, we don't have to do maths. That, yeah. <laughs> Because you will do anything to get out of doing maths. What right? we used to do is we used to ask our uh, Latin teacher how her dove was doing, and she could talk about that dove all lesson. She had a dove? She had a pet dove. Alright. Okay. Don't call it a pigeon, though. No. That was no, when we no, got back no, onto no. doing the hard work. <laughs> well, if you refer to a pet dove as a pigeon. Yep. Alright, well, uh, we won't refer to it as a pigeon then, because uh, your, your teacher of Latin would not be happy. <laughs> the teacher of Latin I had five years ago. Yeah, who I am sure <laughs> listens to this show. Yeah. I'm absolutely positive that she does. That's what I think. Anyway. Yeah, we'll uh, be back in a minute with our very special episode. Trekker Talk. A fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, right, we're back. Yeah, so, um, favourite comics is what we're doing this week. Um, and as I said at the top of the show, we both came up with various different sets of rules for what we were going to cover mm-hmm. and how we were going to cover it. My rules are as follows. Number one, they could not be comics we'd already covered. I'll be honest, while this seemed like a no-brainer, it really did make things difficult for me. Yeah. I wanted to have stories from each of my favourite characters, which are Spider-Man, Superman, the Hulk, and the Batman. However, we have devoted many shows to these characters and have covered a lot of favourite stories already. Hell, we devoted eight weeks to Superman's birthday, and we did that massive two-parter, our favourite Batman stories. Mm. That kind of whittled away at the Superman-Batman stuff, yeah. didn't it? So, this rule was our challenge with even a single issue like Hawkeye number 3 mm. which was one of my favourite modern comics and is one of the few issues that series deserving of the hype that was out of the running mm. because we'd already covered it so I couldn't I couldn't go back and cover that one I did want to look at the broad diversity of comics however I did feel that you would be more likely to bring the more offbeat choices yeah, yeah. into the mix and so therefore I felt confident by and large just focusing on the big two, on Marvel and DC, on funny little science fiction stories and men in tights beating each other up. Yeah. Because that's what I quite like. Because uh, I knew you wouldn't let me down. And mm-hmm. spoilers, he didn't. <laughs> Before we get into that. Two, they had to be comics I had actually bought physically. Not trades, not digital, not even part of an overlong story arc. I went for single issues. This wouldn't be that challenging, as it turns out. In true me fashion, I have broken this rule once. Once? Once. Only once. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and you're right. You're looking at the pile of comics at the side of me and going, Dad, there are three trade paperbacks. That was the thought, yeah. Yes, but 
These are here simply because they were easy to pull off the shelf. Okay. I did buy the the one that you're looking at, the, and I did buy that one. I, I have got them as single issues. Yeah, okay. But it was yeah. easy to just pluck the trade paper back off instead of rummaging through long boxes. I retract my cynical yeah. argument. You, your scepticism was well-founded, <laughs> yeah. though. But in one instance, there, there has been a cheat. And I will mention that when we get to it. For me, number three, there were to be no complete runs. One of the things I think hurt that list of the top 75 Marvel comics that came out a year or so ago was the woolly definition. It would be very easy, I think, for me to just do a favourite runs of comics by single creators. I just list off Preacher, Hitman, Burns FF, Clermont and Burns Iron Fist, Lee Ditko, Spider-Man, Thomas and Windsor Smith's Conan, Michelini Simonson Palmer on Star Wars, Wade and Samney on Daredevil, Stern and Byrne on Captain America, and Dixon and McDaniels run on Nightwing, and there you go. And that's the end of our show. End of the show. Yeah. You see how easy that was? But I like challenging myself a little bit when we do stuff like that. I like how you don't even have to think about that. Yeah, and I didn't. Honestly, I've written them down so I knew what order they were in. Yeah. In the notes, lovely listener. But that, I just rattled them off. What are my all-time favourite runs off comics by specific creators? Done. Okay. And that, that's as it spilled out of my head. I wonder if you could do it. If I gave you a creator, would you be able to tell me your favourite run by them? Depends who the creator is. I suppose you could try it. Rob Liffield. Uh, <laughs> I've not read enough Rob Liffield comics to comment. The most would have to be Captain America from Heroes Reborn, simply because I've read at least three of them. Okay. Whereas with all these other stuff, I don't think I've ever read more than one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number four, there could be no obvious choices. You will not find Batman Year One, The Killing Joke, The Night Gwen Stacy Died, or any of the other choices that are always on these kinds of lists. Although, again, I have kind of broken this rule once. Right. Coincidentally, with the same issue that broke rule number two. Okay. So that one could be considered a very obvious choice, couldn't it? Yeah. If you know the one that I'm talking about. So, mine are all single issues, because that's what comics mean to me. There is nothing more satisfying than picking up a comic, reading it cover to cover, closing it, and then giving a satisfied sigh that it was a good, satisfying story well told. There are also other factors that came into play. My all-time favourite Batman stories are the player on the other side and the origin of Batman from 1940, but they featured in neither our top ten Batman stories or this list because we've covered them before. Mm. So they were out. Likewise, one of my all-time favourite Spider-Man stories, The Sinister Six, has never been covered by us because I do plan on covering all of the Lee Ditko Spider-Man, but at this point I think that's going to be a palace of glittering delights. Yeah. I don't think we're going to fit that in before Hey Kids finishes. So, think of this as an oddball choice of favourite stories, and I reserve the right to update and amend whenever I feel like it. Okay. Um, mine have all stood the test of time, though, and are all good comics, despite most of them, really, mm. really ever appearing on comic book resources lists of such, because they just did 75 Joker stories, didn't they? They did. And I bet, did you read it? Uh, I didn't get through it all the way. I reckon you could name me the top five just off the top of your head now. Was the Killing Joke one? Killing Joke was there. Um, I know the man who laughs was in it, but that wasn't top that five. That wasn't top five. I can't think of any more. Alright, Killing Joke. Hunt the Dark Knight from Dark Knight Returns. Oh, the um, Mad Love. Mad Love. Right. Uh, Joker's Five Way Revenge. Right. Laughing Fish. Okay. There you go. So that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, there yeah. is a certain element of yes, they are the top five for a reason. Yeah. But if you can reel them off without even looking at the list... There's no need for the there's list. There's no need for the list. What were your rules, Michael? Uh, my lists were uh, one Morrison. 
<laughs> that was a very specific uh, rule a, I had. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Otherwise, you could have just done top ten Morrison stories. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, um, I mean, that kind of made it uh, more difficult. But the flip side of that was it made it a lot easier. It's made it a lot more eclectic. Yeah, I think your list is far more eclectic than mine. Mm, well, I was um, well with the, the Morrison rule. It was um, it made it harder because I had to really little down. Little down. Little down. Narrow down. Whittle down, whatever, yeah. <laughs> what Morrison stories I wanted to do. But it made it really easy because I had, you know, I had to pinpoint one specifically. Yeah. So that was quite easy. Right. Um, another rule was it had to be. I mean, I'm not going to go for ones that I bought because then I wouldn't be covering anything. Well, looking at that pile, they're mostly ones I bought, yeah. It's some of them are yours as well. Yes, but some of them are mine. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, but they had to be like ones that. It kind of changed how I saw comics. That's something that really made me think about them. Um, uh, apart from Invincible, because right. uh, well, again, with Invincible, I can't pinpoint one specific story. Or no, it's the, it's the whole, isn't it? Yeah. Occasionally, it's like the Viltrumite War. Yeah, yeah. Will come up. And there's one or two issues, like the issue with the poor guy that you covered who got kicked into space and the crap beat out of him. Oh yeah, yeah. That was a good issue. Guardians of the Globe or whatever. Mm. But yeah, as a whole, because we read Invincible in the hardcovers, it is quite difficult to pick a single issue, isn't it? Yeah. So whilst Invincible is is my Spider-Man, it's my growing-up story, I I, I would choose the whole thing rather than just think it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, then, should we get into it? We should play top of the box music at this point. Should we? And going back a couple of years, we would have made Jingle Jangle Julie Julie jokes. All right, then, all right, then. But I I think that would be distasteful. (laughs) At this juncture. <laughs> so. It's tasteful but tempting. <laughs> so we won't. <laughs> we won't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, number ten. Coming at number ten on my list. The origin of Doctor Strange. This is a weird one. But when I was thinking of my favourite stories that we'd not covered, this one just leapt out straight away. It was the first one that leapt into my head, which is why it's the first one on the list. Uh, most of these just leapt out at me, which is normally a sign that we're doing it right. Anyway, I first read The Origin of Doctor Strange in the pages of Marvel Tales 137, so there's a single issue. Although I am looking at this in the Marvel Masterwork for Doctor Strange. Uh, it was the start of that title's reprinting of Spider-Man from the very beginning. However... The Spider-Man origin is only 11 pages. So editor Tom DeFalco needed something else to fill out the issue. He picked the eight-page origin of Doctor Strange. Now, Doctor Strange is an oddity in the Marvel canon, in that, according to Stan, it was all Steve's idea. So I don't think there's any debate on who created Doctor Strange. And this is a haunting little eight-page tale, more akin to the short science fiction stories that Marvel published before the age of the superhero. In it, we learn that Dr. Stephen Strange was a master surgeon of what, we are never told, but presumably something difficult like neurosurgery. Strange is a conceited individual, interested only in himself and money, even refusing to participate in charity drives. However, when he's involved in a car accident that damages his hands, he spirals into depression and journeys to India to find the Ancient One, a master of arcane art who Strange believes can cure him. Whilst there, however, Strange learns that the Ancient One's pupil, Mordo, is, in fact, planning on using his skills to usurp the Ancient One and wreak havoc upon the world. And Strange quickly learns that only he may be able to stop him. Now, on the face of it, this is a very slight 
unusually for early Marvel. It was not the first Doctor Strange story they published. It was actually the fourth published Doctor Strange story, appearing originally in Strange Tales issue 115. And it was considered so important, it doesn't even merit a mention on the cover. The cover is Spider-Man's decapitated head (laughs) on the wall while the Sandman attacks the Human Torch. Doctor Strange doesn't even get mentioned as being in the comic. However, this story really struck a chord with me as a kid. Strange was different to Marvel's other heroes in that they all had greatness thrust upon them, but with the possible exception of Peter Parker, they were pretty decent people to begin with. Here, Stephen Strange is not a nice man at all. He's only out for himself. He's got no concern for his fellow man, nor for his own talent. All he wants is money. And as we've learned elsewhere, the pursuit of money is the root of all evil. He's arrogant, vain, and materialistic. But crucially, and what I really liked about this, he's exactly the same after the accident. Mm. That was a great moment. He didn't have um, a eureka moment after his accident. This is what sold it on to me as a kid. He doesn't change after his life-changing moment. Yeah. At all. He remains the same, and his descent into depression is powerful stuff. There is also no doubt how much of an impact Ditko's art had on me. Moodier than even his Spider-Man work, Ditko's use of shadow and casting his figures in half-light was never more pronounced, especially in the scenes where, where Strange is unkempt and scruffy after the accident. He's got a five o'clock shadow, and he's illuminated only by the light of his cigarette. The moody art plays perfectly into Strange's mindset, and he only undergoes his character arc after learning that he may be all that stands between Mordo and world domination. When this happens, Ditko starts opening the strip up to his more wackier and colourful mind-bending thoughtscapes, which is what you think of when you think of Strange's work on Doctor Strange. Ultimately, why I think this story stayed with me as a kid and why I still like it is that even though it's rushed today by today's standards, it lacks the proper motivation for the supporting characters. In this simple eight-page story, Stephen Strange is a fully formed three-dimensional character. He's not a cardboard hero who does the right thing simply because it's the right thing to do. He's a real person. He has foibles and flaws. He struggles to become a hero and he has to sacrifice his old self to achieve that goal. Essentially, he has to be reborn. And this was Marvel Comics to me as a kid. And Stephen Strange, even though I never really glommed onto the Doctor Strange strip as a regular read, beyond some of the more wackier Kirby visuals, uh, Ditko visuals, sorry, this made him a real person. Being a hero shouldn't be easy, it should be hard. And Doctor Strange demonstrates that brilliantly. I hope that they're going to use this character arc in the upcoming movie, although I will understand if they don't use the rather simplistic story that's wrapped around it. But that was number ten for me. All right. Did you read it? I did. Did you like it? Um, I'll be a no then. Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> somewhat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Ditko's art's better on a title like that than, say, Spider-Man. Oh, I don't know. I think it's, it's the two sides of the same guy. It's Spider-Man guess, yeah. stuff's a lot. Is, is New York. Mm. And it's crime noir and everything's in shadows, whereas his Doctor Strange stuff is his chance to show us his, his wacky side, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But even though at the beginning of it, it's quite dark and moody, which I quite liked. I thought it would have been better if there was more Doctor Strange and not just all in the last panel. 
Yeah, it's it, well, that goes to what I'm saying about it being quite badly constructed. It's yeah. eight pages, it's all Doctor Strange's origin, and then, oh, in the last panel he becomes Doctor Strange at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is how it, it, that's what it is, isn't it? Which, yeah. It's a shame, it's not very well paced. But the, the core essence is there, to do something with yeah. it, that is interesting. So I'm hoping they're going to follow that. I'm hoping Stephen Strange is going to be a twat. In the film. Okay, yeah, okay. Because all the other Marvel hero films have played off the fact that they're all quite likeable. Even Thor, he was arrogant, and his arrogance led to his downfall, but he wasn't unlikable. Because arrogance can be likeable in certain people. Yeah, it's, it's Tony Stark, really, the one who's been the most unlikable. But even then, you, you kind of envied his lifestyle. I want Doctor Strange, at the beginning of the Doctor Strange movie, to be an utter bastard. And over the yeah, course okay. of the movie, his arc means that you start liking him. Okay, yeah. I'd, I'd prefer that. Anyway. Uh, oh, yeah, so my number ten. And these aren't in any real order. What I, I, I tried to do was mix up. You know, I, yeah, mine's the same. Mine's not in yeah. order anyway. Um, but this is... Uh, some of them are pretty left field, but this is the leftiest of fields. <laughs> um... But, yeah, growing up watching uh, Toonami, part of the Cartoon Network family, and now a part of the Adult Swim, um, it had me watching Japanese anime from a young age, influencing my interest in video games and even the length of my hair. <laughs> and the name of your pet. Yeah. Uh, I watched Gundam Wing, Samurai Jack, and Dragon Ball Z religiously, but also had an interest in uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, the anime showed on Toonami was the second adaptation of the original Shonen Jump manga, Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Monsters, which primarily focused on the monster card game, probably due to selling cards as merchandise. Which is why it was weird to me when in Florida I bought the first two volumes of the manga by Kazuki Takahashi and saw a completely different story. One of the first things that I noticed was that the card game was only played in one two-part story. The rest had Yugi possessed by the King of Games after solving the ancient Egyptian millennium puzzle, all things from the TV show, but then tortured wrongdoers. People who play music too loud would forever hear banging bass, a sleazy journalist would forever see in pixels, and a dual monster cheater would find themselves trapped within their own card. To me, this was pretty heavy stuff after watching the cartoon. Uh, but the one I picked today is one that I've always remembered, which is the fourth chapter, uh, Jailbreak. Uh, like all stories, this is pretty light-hearted fun for children until the King of Games possesses Yuga. But this story features a character who has tattoos, smokes, drinks, and carries a gun, which is probably why the story sticks out so much. As characters in cartoons are, most cartoons that weren't on before Nine would never have any of those things, and yet this character possessed all of them. The story is Yugi and Jonoichi, his friend, following their other friend Anzu after school to her secret place of work, Burger World, but the joint is held hostage by an escaped convict, who wants a drink and some cigarettes. He holds Anzu hostage and demands Yugi give him what he wants, and he does so, but the King of Games kicks him. The two can only choose one finger to use. The convict picks his trigger finger and Yugi picks his thumb, which he uses to light the convict's cigarette, before planting it, still lit, on the convict's pouring arm. Unable to move or pull the trigger due to recoil, the convict is burned alive as Yugi and friends leave. Like I said, the standards of most comics or manga, this might seem pretty tame, but seeing a cute, light-hearted cast burn a man alive kind of blew my mind at the time. Yugi torches all these people. And this is worlds apart from the cartoon that I was still watching. To me, this was a mature sto a story, and within context, arguably still is. Uh, it, arguably out of context, because I've never read Yu-Gi-Oh! 
and uh, we've read all of these ten this morning because we've not had to do proper detailed notes on them, so it's it's been easier to do this show. And uh, I read that Yu-Gi-Oh story this morning, and initially I'm like, who are these people? What's going on? Yeah. But it doesn't matter because mm. you get sucked into the story pretty quickly and you figure it out pretty quickly. And as I got to the end where he actually balances the lighter on the guy's hand over that vodka. Yeah. And he calmly explains <laughs> to him, you're pouring vodka, though, that's 80% proof. Yeah. That's going to burn if you move. And then he drops it, and it just sets him on fire. Mm. And the other character, like, got what he deserved. He was holding a gun at my friend. Yeah. And it was a brilliant little story. I really did enjoy it. I love the artwork, because they've all got that manga yeah, yeah. expression of big eyes. But my favourite bit about it was how melodramatic the early bit was. <laughs> oh, you cannot go to Burger World! <laughs> and you're like, calm down, dear. Yeah. And all of that was absolutely brilliant. So then you've got that ending, mm. where you, Yugi... Is that Yugi? Yeah, yeah. Yugi does that to him, and you're like, holy Jesus, this isn't a cartoon, is it? Mm. And it was brilliant. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Loved it lots. So okay. good pick. Good first choice. Number nine, my number nine anyway. Marvel Fanfare, issue 18. Is the actual comic? There you go. Marvel Fanfare was not a title that I picked up with any regularity as a kid. It never showed up in any news agents for one, which would preclude me from even seeing it, let alone buying a copy. However, a number of the best fanfare stories did crop up as backup strips or other page fillers in many a UK reprint mag. My all-time favourite story from fanfare was With Friends Like These, a really quite touching Hulk story featuring Eunice the Untouchable and The Blob by Stephen Grant and Joe Bennett, but we already covered that. Mm-hmm. Now, Marvel Fanfare had a number of great stories, but Home Fires by Roger Stern, Frank Miller and Joe Rubenstein is one of the best Captain America stories that deserves to be better known than it is. As I say, originally presented in Marvel Fanfare issue 18, Frank Miller provides both a front and back page image. Fanfare was a very expensive book simply because it had no adverts. Looking at these images of Miller without an inker, we can see that he always had the blocky Kirby-like fingers. But maybe that was toned down by his inkers. I've always thought of Miller as being more of an acolyte of Ditko and Joel Eisner, but there are very definite Kirby influences in his work. Captain America in general is always a hard character for people to wrap their head around. Even more than Superman, Cap was a propaganda piece, and taken out of the context of World War II, he can be problematic. However, this story shows why I've always liked the Cap character. In Home Fires, Cap isn't fighting a supervillain or an organisation with dreams of world conquest. He's fighting the common disenfranchised man of the people who, for whatever reason, feels that their country has been usurped by corrupt officials in Washington. Reading this now, it's absolutely astonishing how political it is and how absolutely nothing's changed Mm -hmm. since 1985. In this story, Cap comes up against a group of ordinary people, cops, dock workers, local businessmen, who want what they feel they're entitled to, a bigger slice of the cash cow that they feel has been taken from the common man by increased taxes and government levies. They band together to burn a few buildings to make their point and hold the city to ransom, but it all starts going south when people die. There are a number of things to like about this story. One, Cap is a badass in numerous places. He is uncompromising in hunting down these men, especially after their arson attack nearly kills a small boy and does kill an elderly lady. There's a scene in the middle of the comic where Cap refuses to give up, continuing to apply CPI to the elderly woman alongside a firefighter, only to have her die in his arms. 
And the bit where the fireman actually has to put his hand on Cap's shoulder and say, look, she's gone, is genuinely heartbreaking. It's genuinely really well written. Number two, I did love that all the firefighters in this story are really pleased to see him. There's none of this tired superhero hatred of Captain America here. He mucks in with all of them. I love that bit. You, you read all those stories of Steve Buscemi and 911 because he used to be a firefighter. Yeah, yeah. He's going rejoining his old group and helping out. That's what Cap does. He's carrying the big coils for the water and he's leaning on the fire thing and none of them resent him being there. Yeah. That's all great stuff. Number three, Cap's appeal at the end, his idea of what America should stand for, could be seen as corny. But it clearly signifies the difference between the Superman of the 1950s and the Captain America of the 1980s, and probably even still today. Superman stood for the status quo, the American way, a statement that is politically potent and implies that a specific way of life is better than anyone else's. However, here, as Cap clearly points out in the story, the American dream, which is what he represents, is applicable to everybody. A dream of a better life. This is not an exclusively American concept. A dream of a better life works for everybody. And I think that's why I've never really had a problem with the character. And I actually like him a great deal. It also represents a morally grey area to Cap that gives him more depth. Nowhere is this more demonstrated than in the arsonist's line, you're either with us or against us. A morally bankrupt and simplistic argument that allows for no shades of grey or even a discussion. But then, these guys are clearly terrorists. And Cap's response, your right to seek comfort and happiness ends when you endanger others, is, is a marvellous riposte. It's a great story. Really brilliant story. It's to be expected from Roger Stern, who's one of the best writers in the business, but there's some career-high work here from Frank Miller. Its themes of terrorism, entitlement, and the politically disenfranchised still resonate today. And away from all of that... It's still an all-time classic Cap story. And if you've never read it, it's well worth seeking out. At the moment, Cap Marvel Fanfare is easily pick-a-bubble. I don't know if that's a word in the 50p bins. Yeah. Which is largely where I picked this one up. Did you read it? I did. Did you like it? Um, I did. I thought some of it was a bit heavy with the cover and the end where he goes back in for the flag. Well, that's the point of the story, though, yeah. isn't it? No, I get what they're going for. It's just it, it, there are times when, like, it's a bit heavy, a bit preacher, but I was impressed at how um, both sides of the argument were written. They weren't treated as, you know, terrorists. They were more written as people who stand for something. It's just not exactly the right thing to, yeah, to that, fight about it. That's what I was on about. It's not some simplistic morally red, black and white, no yeah. middle ground tale of this is how wonderful I am and the country that I come from. Yeah. That's what I liked about it. And Frank Miller's art's great. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, the back half of this issue is just pin-ups. Um, some of them are very good. Some of them aren't very good, no. Like, do you get the feeling Marvel fan for had some pages to fill? Probably. Are you think he, he makes a joke about that in the editorial at the beginning? Oh, does it? Yeah, it's a good one. Marvel fan for 18. Your choice. Uh, my choice, yeah. It's uh, Signal to Noise. I picked up Signal to Noise and Violent Cases cheap at Thought Bubble one year. I'd heard a lot of good stuff about violent cases, so I decided to read that second, saving the best for last. And that turned out to be a mistake. It's not bad, it's just I thought that signal to noise was better. It's an arty, and in some cases it looked pretentious, which is something you'd expect from McKean, <laughs> but he makes full use of the graphic novel medium, and they both tell a pretty interesting story in an interesting way. 
It's the story of a filmmaker working on his last film, the story of the end of the world, but when he's told he's dying, he makes the film in his head instead, and is unable to stop himself from writing the script. We follow him as he comes to terms with the news and deciding to go out on his own terms. What hit me the most about this when I first read it, and although it seems pretty obvious now on rereads, is that it's all about perspective. Set against the backdrop of the turn of the millennium, it's all about the end of the world and how everybody's world ends. It's about it's about death and what that means for the person involved, the end of the world. It's about how it can affect others as well, how the world can end with the death of that person. It's about art and films and people. It's a Neil Gaiman story, and so of course the people are well written and the themes are nothing new, but are ex- executed really well. McKean's art is great as well, with the page count benefiting him. The Gaiman McKean graphic novels are all about people, their experiences, their fears, and this is the most real, arguably the scariest one of them all. It's about death, it's something that will affect everyone and won't stop or change. And we follow a man from diagnosis to the memories of those around him. Despite that, it's a happy story. It starts with the bad news, sure, but we follow him as he comes to terms and accepts his fate and writes this film, and ends with the memories, the legacy he leaves behind him. It's essentially the illustrated diaries of a dying man and the memoirs of his producer. And it's one of those things where we say that we don't have much to say about um, stuff we really like, and this is one of them. Uh, I don't know. I think there's there's lots that you could you could actually say about this because uh, Michael dumped all of his stuff on me this morning. To be fair, you did give me last week, and I've been busy, so I didn't get to read it. And I was going to read this last night, and I took one look at the length of it and thought I'm going to fall asleep reading it. And I read it this morning, and it is absolutely gripping. It is a really really good story. It's set against the backdrop of the turn of the millennium, so the end of the world. Yeah. But as they go through the story. He starts saying, well, it is the end of my world. Mm. I won't be here to see the end of the world in 1999. Because presumably this takes place in 1989. Yeah. Because he says in ten years' time I wanted to be there in Times Square Mm. to celebrate, and I'm not going to be. And slowly he goes about writing his film again. It doesn't actually say who ended up directing it, but it gets made, doesn't it? Yeah. So it obviously got made by somebody. Maybe it's like when Kubrick died and Spielberg directed AI. Okay. Maybe it was a similar deal to that. Somebody else came in and did it. But it's it's a really haunting and beautiful little story. My only complaint about it is the last couple of pages have black writing on red background. Right. And I hate that. <laughs> I never find that easy to read. But the introduction does point out that the problem with it is sometimes you just end up looking at Dave McKean's art mm. and not actually taking in the words. Yeah. And then the other time, you are taking in Neil Gaiman's really great words and not taking in the art. Mm. So there's a, there's a slight disconnect between the two of them. And you you kind of have to slow yourself down while you're reading it. Yeah. And look um, at both while you're going through it. I also do wonder, was this director based on Archie Goodwin? Uh, I don't know. Because it looks a little bit like Archie Goodwin. Right. And the book itself was dedicated to Archie Goodwin. So I don't know if that's me reading something into it. Because mm. I know Neil Gaiman had a fondness for Archie. Right. And I don't know whether that's right. But yeah, that was that was good. I very much enjoyed reading that. So, so far you're batting two for two. Yeah. Uh, Strangely. <laughs> Strangely and oddly. Number nine. The Incredible Hulk issue 477. No, it's not. It's 377. I wrote that wrong on there, haven't I? 
Uh, the Incredible Hulk is a long-time favourite character, with a huge back catalogue of great stories for you to discover. However, for some reason, a lot of people don't really consider the Hulk to be a great series, despite many years of consistently good comics. There were, therefore, a number of Hulk stories that I considered for this. I've already mentioned one of my favourite Hulk stories is Marvel Fanfare, but we've already done it. Going through the years, I also liked Steve Ditko's short run, an unpopular choice, I know, and a lot of the Len Wein, Roger Stern stories. However, when one thinks of the Hulk as a comics fan, one thinks of Peter David. And David, more than any other writer, changed the perception of the Hulk when he took over as writer of the title in 1987 and stayed for a pretty impressive 12 years. His greatest era, however, was when he teamed with artist Dale Keown, and together they took the Hulk to new heights. One of my favourite issues, a choice that could be considered obvious. What do you think? Uh, I wouldn't know. Alright, okay. Uh, Incredible Hulk 377, uh, entitled Honey, I Shrunk the Hulk. This issue was actually a culmination of a series of smaller plots that David had been working on for a number of issues, and this approach typified David's run. He would tell a story for a certain amount of time and then change direction, taking the reader in a new and different direction, making the Hulk series rather unpredictable for a number of years. This new direction was to focus on Bruce Banner's multiple personality disorder and attempt to create a new Banner, a Banner at peace for the first time in years. To this end, Dr. Leonard Sampson is called in and he attempts to shrink all of the disparate Banner personalities, the aggressive, forthright Grey Hulk, the childlike, tantrum-prone Green Hulk and the repressed Dr. Banner himself into one complete individual. Most of the issue takes place in Banner's mind, where we see firsthand the abuse both he and his mother suffered at the hands of his unassuming father, and that this this caused Banner to be the rather uptight individual we saw in the early Hulk strips. David manages to do what good comics writers do. He takes past elements from other writers, in this case Stanley and Bill Mantlo, and uses these apparent differences in personalities to create a compelling narrative that works to strengthen the characters and his backstory. Dale Keown's clean, vibrant art is also a big plus. Whilst the facts of MPD have been rethought and even debunked in certain cases in the years since this story was published, this is still a gripping and intelligent read, building on the past whilst giving the character somewhere to go in the future. Peter David's run is a high watermark on this book. It's probably fair to say he stayed too long. The Liam Sharp drawn issues are particularly bad. But during the early 90s, David took a middling selling book and made it sore. Did you read this? I did. Did you read all of them? Uh, yeah. I'm very impressed with it. That's very good. What do you think? Uh, I did. I, I enjoyed it, actually. I mean, I thought the the whole abusive father thing was a bit... It's it's one of those things that is often overdone and done poorly. Yeah. But, no, it was it was really good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's at the end of... Uh, I mean, I've got the original coffee, but this is the end of the Silent Screams trade uh, from the Ultimate Graphic Novels collection, so you could have read all of it. Yeah, <laughs> if I had the time. If you had the time, and then it follows on with him being like that for ages. Yeah, and then slowly it starts unraveling. But yeah, it's good, good pick. I read the Peter David Hulk one now. Well, you're going to take them all to college with it. Yeah, yeah. You just take my big boxes with you and just sit and read them all. You should have read them all when you were up at Mama's, like when you read Hitman and Preacher. I should have, yeah. You just sat there surrounded by comics boxes, going, that's, "What should I read next?" That's what I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, my next pick is uh, Green Lantern issue nine. Uh, my first real introduction to... Should I get it for you? Yeah, yeah, I read it, so I know which one you're talking about. My first real introduction to Green Lantern was through Alex Ross. Kind of. 
Titan Magazine started publishing its Justice League reprint magazine alongside its Superman and Batman titles, which was collecting Justice, Brad Meltzer's JLA, and Jeff Johns' Green Lantern, but really weirdly edited it in a way that made reading the actual issues later really weird. They soon stopped publishing a few issues away from the end of Justice, so I never actually read all of that in its entirety until owning the Absolute Edition. But it was much later when our, our comic provider sent us Green Lantern issue 43, the Blackest Night prologue, when Dad, you, me, decided that because you'd enjoyed it so much, uh, you were going to buy all the trades. And so that's when we first started reading it. And I can't speak for anything post-Prices Day, but the early stuff was pretty damn good. Branded is one of the earliest single-issue stories. It has Batman enlist the help of Green Lantern to take down the new Tattooed Man, who's killing people with sins and branding their uh, weaknesses onto their corpses. Back when Hal came back as Green Lantern, Batman wasn't his biggest fan, so we got to see this dynamic play out really well between the two. The issue lets Ethan Van Skeever shine, quite literally, with his Bolland-esque depiction of Batman and Tattooed Man's uh, tattoo creations filling up panels with Perez levels of detail. It plays out exactly how you think it would be. It's a typical superhero team-up. And this is a good thing, because it proves that that Johns can write good superhero stories when he puts his mind to it. It's not the best Green Lantern issue, but I liked it when I read it, and it's always stuck out. Probably because we see the Green Lantern Batman that's inspired so many toys and video game downloadable content. It was, it was good, this. It was a good single-issue story. Do you know what was really nice about it, reading it now? What? There's continuity here. Yeah. There's references to the Parallax thing, and although Batman is a complete and utter dick throughout most of this story, yeah. you actually get why he is. Mm. Hal Jordan betrayed them all. Yeah. And he's not quite easy to forgive him as everyone else seems to be. Mm. And I liked that. There is a reason here for Batman being a bit of a knobhead. Yes. And like you said, Skeeter's art is very Brian Bolland. And yeah, very George Perez in a lot of places. So it is a good comment. And it was just a really nice single issue story. Mm. And you're like, why can't they do this now? Yeah. Because it was fun. There's nothing to it. There's no lead-up to another event. Yeah. The, I mean, the only hint of the bigger Green Lantern storyline is when he's on over at the beginning. Yeah. And he gets the warning that some of the Green Lantern Corps don't forgive him either for mm. what he did. And see, so you've lost all of this. Yeah. There's, there's so much... You can argue that the backstory gets a little bit convoluted, but it only gets convoluted when your story depends on the backstory. Yeah. This doesn't depend on you knowing what exactly what happened. All you need to know here is at some point Hal Jordan betrayed everybody. Mm. And that's it. That's all you need to know. But the fact that that backstory's there gives this more of a weight and a depth than it would necessarily have if it was just another issue of Brave and the Bold. Yeah. Because you're right, it's just a superhero team up. But it's a good one. Mm. So yeah, I like that. That was a good choice. Number seven, Fantastic Four Annual from 1998. This was probably the biggest struggle of this entire list. Certainly for me, anyway, not for you. Because I love the Fantastic Four. I think they're a cornerstone of the Marvel Universe. They're a great concept. They can be as cosmic and science fiction-y or as down-to-earth and kitchen sink drama as you want them to be. It can focus on the family dynamic of the entire team or individual characters. It's a masterful idea, the family as superhero. Far more potent and relatable than the X-Men. 
and it pains me that Marvel seems hell-bent on destroying the characters that kicked off the Marvel Universe as we know it, just to give Fox Studios a bloody nose. It just seems petty and childish to me. The other problem I had was we cover the FF every week on the Fantastic Cast, and I didn't really want to pick something that we'd be getting to soon. However, I couldn't not have an FF issue. So did you see my problem? Yeah. Uh, other problems also surfaced. My, my all-time, one of my all-time favourite FF issues is FF Annual Number 1. The Submariner Invades the Surface World, but I didn't buy that as a comic. Mm. So that was out, and I've already covered it. One of my all-time favourite issues is also Hero from Fantastic Four 285. But that's an obvious choice, because it made Marvel's Top 75 list. So Blaine Dowler's going to be covering that on his show. And I want Marvel 2-in-1 is an instant one that sticks out to me. Number 50, right. where the Thing goes back in time to cure himself as a younger Thing, but instead creates a divergent timeline. Okay. But we've covered that, which you don't even remember, judging by your face. <laughs> but it's one of my favourite stories, so I couldn't go for that. So I went for a non-obvious choice. Or at least I think I did. I don't think I've ever seen this on the list of top Fantastic Four stories. If there's any writer that should have had a good long run on the Fantastic Four, it's Carl Kiesel. Preferably with either Kerry Gamble or Tom Grummet on art. Neither of those gentlemen joins Kessel for Fantastic Four Annual 1998, which is drawn by Stuart Immerman which is just as good a choice in many ways. This story, entitled In the Best of Family, sees Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, wake up after a jolt to the noggin in a universe of nothing but legacy heroes. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This should be hell for me. But, in this world, the FF took their fateful journey into space in 1961, and everything that happened after that happened in real time. So, as such... Reed and Sue are now in their 60s and helping set up a Mars base. And the FF are a larger team that includes a grown-up Franklin, who is awaiting the arrival of his first child, and Luna, the child of Johnny and Crystal. The Black Panther's daughter is also here as Franklin's wife, although she's not actually a member of the team. Mm. So, it's an interesting premise for a story, and Kessel lays in a ton of cool in-jokes, as well as touching moments, such as Captain America having given his life somewhere along the line, and the news that Spider-Man just disappeared after the death of a young girl named Gwen Stacy in 1973. His adventures are now the stuff of legend. Ultimately, though, this is a story about family, about how Ben, who isn't a blood relation, fits into that family. I know it was really ahead of the curve in its idea that in the 21st century we all make our own families. Ben discovers that Crystal and Johnny's daughter Luna feels apart from the family, and this helps the wizard gain an in in trying to defeat the team. What's great about this issue is it's simply a good read. It's a really fun annual with a good story that has a good central idea behind it and is told well. It's all done after the 40 pages are over and it never needs to be referred to again. But it's simply a great FF story in that the focus is on one of the characters in here's The Thing and this allows us to see how the whole team works and functions. It's a glorious comic in its ordinariness. If it had been a tad fatter, and had a few posters and special features, it probably would have been one of the great annuals. As it is, it's merely just very, very good. Mm. I loved it. Did you read it? Yeah. What do you think of it? Uh, I thought it was really good. And it's one of those things where, uh, in, in, a, in a series like Fantastic Four, you can only tell real-time stories that should happen yeah. in an Elseworlds yeah, tale. Stuff, which essentially is what this is, isn't it? It's not yeah. quite a what-if. Mm. It is more Elseworlds. I did like the, the poker game that they regularly go to 
bends though, so the, the 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 presumption there is turning him into the thing has aged him slower yeah. than everyone else. Wolverine's there, obviously healing factor, so he ages slower. Thor's a god, so he's immortal. Yeah. But Doctor Stephen Strange is there as well. Yeah, I thought that was a bit strange. So why is why is he stopped aging? Because he doesn't seem to have, unless he just knows mystic chemicals yeah, that yeah. can prevent the, the. I'll just make him look younger. Yeah, or slowed the aging process or a whatever. Mystic facelift. Although the ancient one. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he's learned from the ancient one how to, to stave off growing old. Yeah. So that was good, and there was lots of really lovely little touches throughout the entire issue that just made that one for me. I really like it. Uh, my next choice is uh, Terminator 2. <laughs> this was an odd one. Yeah, uh, for me, this was the most obvious but unusual choice. It's been a long time since I last picked up this comic. It's been left forgotten on a shelf for the rest of the Marvel adaptations. But years ago, I read and reread this several times. Usually with my little toy beside me. Yeah, <laughs> your little Terminator toy. After watching the Andrew Leyland cut of Terminator 2. <laughs> <laughs> I did edit some of the violence. Yep, yep. Uh, I became quite a fan of it, um, despite not watching the first one until a few years ago. I think I was the only kid who got given a T-800 toy whilst being picked up from nursery. <laughs> Kindergarten to you American folk. <laughs> now, my memory's not as good as it used to be, or ever was for that matter. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure where um, I got this from, where it was bought from me, whether it's Manchester or at Mark's. No, I don't remember where I got this from. Um, but when I got the Marvel Comics adaptation, I didn't really much care about the ugly art. I was too young to have opinions on Klaus Janssen, and this comic was as close to the movie as I could get whenever I wanted, and didn't need any of that censorship. Now, it's obviously being written so that it reads like a Fox Kids or Sunday Afternoon edit, but it still remains faithful to both movies, first and second, with some questionable language substitutes, hmm. Mercury Mother being one of them. <laughs> And despite being the 1991 three-issue miniseries collected into one trade, edited to its one whole story, it still only takes the length of a Guns N' Roses song to read. <laughs> as for the art, well, it sure is ugly as you'd expect from Jansen. His art might have suited the Terminators and the future scenes, but we only had a splash page of that, and it was devoted to John Connor standing dramatically. However, there are some nice moments here, with Jansen being able to draw recognisable likenesses when he wants to. And it's only now that I'm reading it again, older and full of opinions, <laughs> that I found problems with it. It's not the movie, sure, but it's a faithful adaptation that's suitable for most ages. The only problem with it is that it doesn't quite have the action that the film has. Yeah, I was quite surprised by your pick of that. Mm. I have not read that. Right, okay. Because it's the, the film adaptation of the movie. I've just had a flick through which it. Which we watched the other week. Which we watched the other week, yeah. I completely agree with you about the art. Yeah. Uh, the art's quite terrible. But no, that's a good choice. That's an interesting choice, though. Number six on my picks. Coming in... Uh, it's a cheat. Is it? I freely admit that this is a cheat. I genuinely could not decide in between these two. And when one of my choices fell through, I, I'd actually dug the comic out and read it, and then right. suddenly remembered, we covered this. Okay. The Hitman Christmas issue, the Santa yeah, Claus. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we've done this. So my list has no Garth Ennis on it. Fortunately, Michael picked up the slack, though. Mm. So that's good. Uh, these were immediately bumped up from the subs bench. Originally, what if Uncle Ben had lived 
was published in, or over here anyway, it was published in the Spider-Man Christmas Special for 1994, although it was originally in What If Issue 46, cover dated August 1984. This story by Peter B. Gillis, with art by Ron Friends and Sam De La Rosa, blindsided me as a kid, and is just as affecting as an adult. Friends, who's perfected his Steve Gitko homage routine by this point, has a number of opportunities to recreate famous Ditko panels from the past and does so exceptionally well. Here the what-if portion of the tale is simple. What if Uncle Ben lived and Aunt May had been shot dead rather than vice versa? Everything pretty much proceeds as it does in the original comics, except for that one moment. But later on, Ben figures out that Spider-Man is really Peter. And then he just gets fed up with J. Jonah Jameson's constant slagging of Spider-Man off that Ben goes to Jonah and reveals Spider-Man's true identity, which is where the problems really begin. Silly Ben. This is a great comic. One of the best what-if issues and one of the most underrated Spider-Man stories ever published. It rarely, if ever, features on any best-of lists, something I think is a travesty. And it being a what-if is probably why. It's not where people go to to look for best Spider-Man stories. Whenever they're doing lists like this, comics readers and bloggers are obsessed with stories that matter, stories that kill people or introduce people or change and shake up the character. Yet they seem to forget you can't have stories like that every issue. Sometimes a story simply has to be a good story and a satisfying read to be memorable and entertaining. And this is hugely memorable and hugely entertaining. There are a few nits to pick, which probably only really leapt out at me this time, such as... Peter Parker meets the Green Goblin before the events of Amazing Spider-Man 10 in this. But the events of Amazing Spider-Man 10 are important to this narrative because in this reality, Spider-Man saves Bennett Brandt, which is Betty Brandt's brother, and because of Betty's involvement, however tangential, with organised crime, this sends Peter into a spiral of depression. And he turns his back on being Peter Parker and just becomes Spider-Man more. There are even elements in this of the early Peter Parker, the Peter who delighted when Flash was kidnapped by Doctor Doom and thought that Flash was just out of his hair forever if Doom killed him, when Jonah gets kidnapped by the Green Goblin. Peter is willing to let Jonah die because it just solves all his problems for him. And it's these human moments that set Peter Parker out from the pack. There is a narrative misstep in that Uncle Ben just disappears from the third act but at least it doesn't end predictably with Ben dying the doors are left open for further adventures but there's a part of me that's glad that that never happened because this just stands alone this way and that's what's really satisfying about it do you like it? Uh, to be honest do you not like this one? no what, what, what about it was I didn't even know you picked this until you just said oh that. right ok that's fair enough I, I must have missed it when I picked up the pile no no that's fine the reason that Michael's missed it is this is a joint number 6 which is what I said when I said I couldn't decide which way to go with this the story sharing this spot is also a what if right. which was part of the problem this one did lead to a successful spin-off comic it doesn't actually have a what if title for some reason, what if at this point had dropped all that? Instead, it's just called Legacy. Again, it's by Ron Friends on pencils and written by Tom DeFalco, but this time it's inked by Bill Senkevich. 
as with a lot of what if stories the premise here is more interesting than the actual story which can be summed up as just being another Osborne versus Parker slugfest but what makes this interesting is which Osborne and which Parker in an alternative future that seems to have split off from the mid-1990s clone saga, Peter Parker lost his leg and Norman, lost it, Norman Osborn lost his life, again, in a final battle that saw Spider-Man retire from public life. Peter instead concentrates on finishing his doctorate and raising his family, a young daughter he and Mary Jane had, called May Parker. May is a pure mixture of MJ and Peter in that she's a straight A student in the sciences, but also a popular kid in that she's attractive and an excellent basketball player. Peter and MJ are afraid more that May's mutant spider-like abilities are starting to manifest at just the same time that Peter starts getting evil letters from the Green Goblin, who here is Normie Osborne, son of Harry and Liz Allen. As with the FF annual that I picked, this proceeds from the legacy character concept and is a very well-done story in that subgenre. This still has a lot of the status quo elements of the mid-90s, references to Ben Riley and Liz Allen is still dating Foggy Nelson, all elements that seem a tad out of date now, but the main story of MJ and Peter's daughter is still exciting and gripping. May is an interesting character, and seeing Peter and MJ's late 30, early 40-somethings is also something that a large portion of the fan base had been clamouring for, a Peter that ages, and DeFalco does an excellent job of it. The art is also interesting in that it's the abstract Bill Sienkiewicz inking the far more conventional Ron Friends, and against all odds, it's a combination that works really quite well. However, it's the characters that service the story best. I do think Peter Parker is a character best served by the high school milieu, but at the same time, there is nothing better than a satisfying story with a good ending. And this provides a full stop to Peter's Spider-Man days while setting up a new paradigm, should Marvel wish to exploit it. She's interesting, May Parker, sorry, is interesting, but she's interesting because of her parents. And by the end of this, we wish we could see more of her. There's a truly great character beat at the end of this issue, where... May figures out what she's doing and she outthinks her opponent. And Peter and Murray Jane, who are watching the fight, Peter figures it out when she does. And he gives that satisfied yes, mm. which underscores that May is her father's daughter. I love that bit because it's what Peter would have done. Yeah. And I just thought it was really cool. Marvel realised what they had here. They'd quickly launched Spider-Girl into her own series, although it always seemed to struggle, despite having a loyal fan following. I love this story. I love the Spider-Girl series as a whole. But even if we'd never had any further stories, this is a lovely little story in the tradition of the best what-ifs. You read that one, then? Yeah. I've, I've read um, quite a few uh, Spider-Girls. I like Spider-Girl. I, I did get bored of it. Uh, but like you said, it's it's the idea of it which is the most interesting. Yeah. Although Peter's facial hair is unforgivable. <laughs> he has the, the green arrow goatee. Yeah. But it's going grey. Because he, he, he still looks like a Ramita Peter Parker. Yeah, but just with, with a, a grey beard. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard. That's the thing with artwork is it is hard to draw people in the middle ages, thirties, forties, fifties. Yeah. Drawing them as kids and teenagers is okay. Drawing old people is easy. Hmm. But when they're in the 30s, 40s and into the 50s, there's not really a lot to glob onto. Yeah. But anyway, they, they were my pick for, for the, the fifth position. What was yours? Yeah, my next choice is probably the most obvious choice. Hmm. It's The Invisibles, a series that stands out of one of Morrison's, Grant Morrison's best, and arguably the series that made him, alongside Animal Man. 
I've said before that a lot of Morrison's work is simple once you turn off the bright and confusing lights. And The Invisibles is a series that's full of a lot of bright lights. But there are some issues that are just simple, down-to-earth and personal. Uh, My choice is issue 12, Best Man Fall, which is a boring and possibly overdone concept by today's standards, and my lack of knowledge is stopping me from giving Morrison any credit for it. But in a long-running series, an issue dedicated to a faceless goon for a secret organisation works. It's based on the events of issue 1, in which King Mob gunned down the faceless goons of said secret organisation. But this issue tells us the story of one of those goons, Bobby Murray. As with most of Morrison's work, this is a non-linear story, and it's only at the end of the issue that we learn of Bobby's importance to the overall series. As we jump around Bobby's life, we like him, then dislike him. He's a man who's been dealt a pretty crap hand in life and has made some bad decisions, whereas other times he just couldn't help what's happened to him. It's probably no coincidence that this issue starts and ends with Bobby dying, both as a soldier in the Falklands and as an innocent boy playing Best Man Fall, a game in which you pick how you want to die, then act out your death scene, and the best scene wins. It's also probably no coincidence that after Bobby dies for real, this issue ends with him getting up from his death scene as a young boy, as though his life had played out through his childhood game. But the issue goes a lot deeper than that. We see his older brother hated him all of his life due to jealousy, and that his last words were his confession of hatred. His father was drunk and abusive, his mother died of cancer. He was mocked for the attachment he had to his mother through his teddy bear. He was a soldier who fought and nearly died in the Falklands. His daughter was born with cerebral palsy. We feel sorry for him as his life plays out, but we also jump around and begin to dislike him. We learn that Bobby's repeating the same mistakes his father did, beating his wife and taking the anger of a poor life out on her. We see their their abusive relationship before we see how they met, and his proposal, which is followed by a letter, a sign of them trying to make their marriage work again, which is, of course, followed by his death at the hands of one of the series' protagonists. It's an issue full of morals that has the audience changing their perception of Bobby with every page. We see all of his life in a rich and well-told single issue that has us change our perception with him as well as our perception of the protagonists. And we often joke about the collateral loss of life in action scenes in movies, TV shows and comics. And some people even go too far by working out the amount Hmm. of damage done and the cost of rebuilding. But this issue does an exceptional job of taking that and making it work in the larger series. Granted, by now there are plenty of stories about this, the men behind faceless organisations, though Tag and Bink is really the only one that springs to mind. Uh, Garth Ennis did a Star Wars story called Trooper in Star Wars Tales. That was essentially just a guy who was conscripted to work for the Empire. Right. And that follows that. And obviously Eddie is a sketch. Yeah, The yeah. Death Star Canteen. Yeah. That kind of follows that paradigm, doesn't it? Like, there had to be people who were cooks. Yeah, yeah. On the Death Star. So that kind of follows it. Um, I, I did enjoy this a great deal. Because, like you say, it is playing with the fact that this guy seemed trapped in just repeating the mistakes that his dad made. Yeah. And his own life has gone down the same path. Mm. Um, My problem with it was the fractured narrative has just been ripped off to no end in Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. Yeah. Which I've just read all 22 issues of. And Fraction's actually said what he did was he would write the story linear Mm. and then he would just move pages around to see were the story still made sense and make it more interesting in a way. 
and because I've just read 22 issues of that yeah, this yeah. kind of stuck out as being a little bit derivative of that but that's not his fault mm. because Grant Morrison wrote that issue what 15 years ago something like that yeah. whereas Fraction's only been doing Hawkeye for a bit so that kind of hurt it a little bit but the, the actual issue and the actual story was really good mm. And because I didn't know that he was killed by King Mob back in issue one. Yeah. So that was quite interesting, this idea that you've... Because one of the things that you mentioned that you do joke about the collateral damage, Total Recall was on ITV4 the other day. Mm. And there's a bit in the middle of that where Arnold Schwarzenegger, our supposed hero of the film, hides behind an innocent bystander (laughs) so he doesn't get shot. Right, okay. Well done, Arnie. <laughs> Which is why I can never get behind Total Recall as a film. Right. Arnie's not a hero in that movie. Okay. I mean, I know he's not in The Terminator, but he's not supposed to be in The Terminator. Yeah. Your hero wouldn't hide behind somebody, an innocent bystander, so he gets riddled with bullets and you don't. Yeah. So what was that guy's story? <laughs> so that guy, though, doesn't go on that night. So his three kids don't have somebody who's bringing money in anymore. Yeah. So his wife spirals into depression <laughs> and turns to alcohol. And all because of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, who we're supposed to root for in this film, that poor family just end up destitute and alone. Yeah. <laughs> I've just wrote that story, haven't I? <laughs> okay, we're halfway through. So we're going to knock it on the head, though, simply because it means we'll end up with 250 episodes. And we're a tease like that. And we're a tease like that. I mean, you can always just save this one. Yeah. And listen to them back to back. <laughs> you wouldn't know to do that until you've listened to them. But you to wouldn't them. know to do that until you've listened to them. That's very true. So we'll call it a day, though. Knock it on the head and we'll carry on with the rest of these next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Mm-hmm.